Thank you for that, Michael. Grateful for worship, whether we're one or a thousand, right? This is great. So if you would take your Bible out, if you have your Bible with you at home, I know you're watching on, online and maybe have it electronically or have a hard copy. We're going to be in the book of John, and we're going to be in Matthew, and we're going to be in Mark. And I know it's going to feel like you're going to bounce around a lot, but primarily John chapter 6. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So John chapter 6, if you can turn your Bible there and maybe put a bookmark in Matthew and in um, Mark as well. And I'll tell you where to go there in just a minute. If you've been staying with the guidebook that Rich wrote over the parables over the last few weeks, this is called the in-between. This is part nine that he wrote in his book. And this in-between talks about this period of time where Jesus is in between where he was telling us the parables in Matthew 13 and the new parables that will be coming up. But this, this part is the in-between. We'll get to that in a moment. I know some of you all are watching with neighbors. I got notes from you already this morning, and I appreciate you doing that, that you've invited people in your apartment building in, you invited people from your next door neighborhoods into your house, and maybe you're one or maybe you're 10, I don't know, but I'm grateful that you've dialed in and that you're watching. You may see some heads occasionally in the camera shots here in the auditorium. It's our leadership team and our staff that are here with family members, and we're, we're small in number. It reminds me of the first year when we launched New Hope, and we were only like 17 or 20 people. It kind of feels that way. Um, but it's not a bad feeling. It's a good feeling in, in that we're together to study God's Word. Peter, you uh, reminded me, Dr. You reminded me that this issue going on in our nation could be going on for a couple weeks or longer. And so I would encourage you that if you know people in your neighborhood or perhaps in your social circle, maybe at work, who have a church, but the church doesn't have the technology to be able to do what we're doing, that you would encourage them to dial into New Hope, and they can watch with you over the next couple of weeks these services this way, and maybe this will become a regular thing for them if they don't go to church. I'm just very thankful this morning for what God has given us in the way of technology and a way of a great technology team, and they're here this morning working on this, and so we're really, really fortunate to have this. I'm going to encourage you to do something if you're watching online right now, and I would ask that you would write a note in, especially if you're on Facebook, and let us know where you're watching from. And every given week, we get notes from people in Texas or in Florida or sometimes Washington or Washington, D.C., and let us know that they're watching. But do that wherever you're watching from right now, even if you're just sitting on your sofa in Hazlitt or East Lansing, and let us know where you're watching from. We'd love to hear from you. And the last thing I want to get to a detail before I want to pray with you is uh, the church's costs in operating each week financially is about $27,000. That's our budget costs. And obviously, if we can't meet together on a weekly basis physically, the costs still go on because we still have expenses here. So there's buttons you can use while you're watching online today to give. It says give now on our website. You can give and push the button. You can do it through PayPal. Or, uh, is that right, Kyle, through PayPal? Push pay, I want to say it right, through push pay. Okay, so make sure you use that, and you can give electronically and help the church continue to do the work that we're doing. We still support the work of missionaries, and we still have a compassionate care fund. We still have operating costs. Okay, all those details aside, I want to take a minute and pray with you. We've, we've had the leaders of our nation identify this as a national day of prayer. And it's about praying for our nation and what we're going through right now, but also where God has us. It's not by accident that God has allowed this. It's not by accident that God has allowed this in our nation to humble us and remind us again of how fragile we are. 
So we come before him and we pray right now, asking that God would do his work and accomplish his purposes in the midst of what some people are seeing as a complete trauma. Others are just thinking, wow, I just wish this would go away go away it's such a minor thing well depending on where you're at on that issue in either case God's working his purposes and we need to ask that he would indeed accomplish those purposes and perhaps he'll use us to do that so would you join me in prayer right now whether you're watching online or whether you're live in the auditorium let's pray together Father, we, we bow our heads before you right now like the rest of our nation we join millions of believers who are coming before you on, on what we call a national day of prayer. We know that as believers we pray every day. But we wanna offer up these moments and these circumstances to you and ask that you would accomplish your purposes. Specifically, Father, if, if this was meant to humble us and turn us back towards you, which is always your desire, we pray that you would do that. Use this virus, use these circumstances, use the trauma that people are going through to draw people into the kingdom. And God, I ask that if you're going to do that through the work of people at New Hope, if you're going to do that by using each of us independently, let it begin with us. Let us be willing to be used that way. So Father, do a work in our heart right now as we turn our attention to your word and you show us how to respond in the times of trauma. We work through this passage that you caused Matthew and Mark and John to write down 2,000 years ago. It's for a reason. God, I ask that you would translate that reason to, to opportunity for the kingdom. So we pray that you would illuminate our eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. So God has all things in control. We've said that earlier in a letter this week. We said that many times throughout the years at New Hope that God controls all things. So I'm asking this question, does he have a purpose in allowing a virus like this? Is there an opportunity for the kingdom to expand in the midst of it? We just talked about this national day of prayer. Every time a trauma comes into our life, there's always an opportunity to look at it and say, what about me? Or there's an opportunity to look at it and say, what about how God's going to work through me in the midst of this trauma? We find ourselves in John chapter 6 this morning, and we're in northern Galilee when we open up our Bible. Northern Galilee is in the northern part of Israel, and it's around the area of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a very famous story. A lot of people are familiar with it, but I'm going to walk you through it so you can see how to respond in the midst of times that are traumatic in your life. Here's the situation. Jesus is uh, somewhere around 32 years of age at this point, about a year and a half before his crucifixion, and his popularity is skyrocketing, regardless of the opposition that's against him. Nationally, people are pressing against him. The leadership is pressing against him. But among the people, among the populace, he's incredibly popular. And he needs time away. So you'll see these verses pop up on the screen. If this is your first time to New Hope, we use verses up on the screen all the time. And this first one I want you to see is John 6, verse 1. And you see what's going on. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which means he was on the west side and he's going to the east side because that was his quiet place. Mark records in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus went away by boat. So he and the disciples get in a boat, they put out the sail, somebody begins rowing, and they cross by boat, and they're working their way across the sea, and the goal is privacy. 
are hoping for some downtime. So Matthew records it this way, Matthew 14, verse 13. Jesus heard about John and he withdrew, and it goes on to say, to a secluded place. What's going on in the story is that John the Baptist has just been executed. He's been murdered by Herod, and Jesus heard about that. The word that's used that Jesus went to a secluded place is this first Greek word, and you'll be shocked to see that there's seven Greek words in your notes this morning. Yeah, so I've got seven Greek words, and not trying to teach you the Greek language, but just because you need to get a sense of what's going on here, the, the word that there is, is eremos, meaning an unfrequented place. So Jesus has this remote area, apparently that he goes to on a fairly regular basis. It's on the east side, and what's significant about that is that it's outside of Herod's territory. Herod isn't king over this region where he's going. So one of the things that strikes me is this, Jesus had a quiet place. Do you? Do you have a quiet place that you go to? Ladies, maybe it's your she shed, maybe it's a walk in the woods, maybe it's your bathtub. I don't know what that looks like for you, but do you have a quiet place? A place that's solitary, that word eremos is talking about some place that's solitary. Why? Well, for specific reasons. Just like you, Jesus has been involved in exhausting work. He's human. He's fully God, but he's fully man. And that he needs rest speaks to the reality that he's fully man. So he needs to recharge. He needs a break from the pace he's keeping. And the news reaches him that his cousin, John the Baptist, has just been murdered. And so he wants some time away. And Matthew writes it this way, Matthew 14, 13. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. So picture this. They're in the boat, the sails are up, and they're rowing, trying to get to the other side. And somebody looks at the horizon, and they see standing on the beach this crowd, another huge crowd. So don't think that social media is unique to our day. It was there in the first century. Somehow somebody let the word out. Somebody told somebody who told somebody that Jesus is coming. And you can imagine the mixture of emotions that's on the beach that day. All of this humanity gathered together. Some are there out of curiosity and some are there out of desperation. What else would draw such a huge crowd to the middle of the wilderness? The Bible goes on to say there's 20,000 people plus that are gathered there. And they're in such a hurry to get there, to be with Jesus, so focused on Jesus' presence that they forget to pack a lunch. They don't bring lunch. They don't bring supper with them. And so Jesus goes into teaching mode. He steps onto the beach. He begins teaching them. Then he heals people who have needs to be healed. And then he feeds them. And he feeds the crowd to such a degree that the actions cause the crowd to come to a conclusion. This is the guy. This must be the prophet. This must be the Messiah, the one that Moses spoke of in the book of Deuteronomy. He's the one. Now, Jesus knows these people. He knows their mentality. He knows what they're thinking. They're about to swarm him. And they want to force him to be king. Watch this. It says this in John 6. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. 
What's going on in the emotions of the people? They want him to rule. They want someone to feed them, to guarantee their security, to guarantee their safety. And so with Jesus as their king, they're never going to want for food. They're never going to want for protection. They're going to be healed of every illness. So they want him to lead a revolt against Rome. Now, there's something going on here in the midst of this story. John just told us that Jesus withdraws again to the mountain. Well, that's just part of the story. Matthew and Mark give us another view of the story. Look with me at what John said now again, John 6, verse 16. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It already had become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Just pause there for a moment. In the ancient world, especially among the Jewish people in the Hebrew world, there were two evenings. There's the evening that we would refer to evening as when the sun is beginning to set. You can see it on the horizon, and it turns into twilight, and we just call that evening. But if you notice the other Greek word in your notes, it's apsios. It's talking about the close of the day, in other words, nightfall. So there's two evenings being referred to here, not just when the sun's beginning to go down, but when it also becomes completely dark. So the disciples get into the boat around sunset. That's the first evening. And their thinking is this. We can cover the distance to Capernaum in the waning light as the sun is going down. The sun will be down when we get to the other side of the sea, but these are professional fishermen. Seven of them are professional fishermen. They made their living at sea. Twilight in the springtime is really brief, but they know they'll at least arrive at dark, but they want to be home. But Mark fills in a really important detail in the story. Look with me at this one, Mark 6.45. Immediately, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida. Now, that doesn't sound like Capernaum. And why is Jesus making them get in the boat? Why is Mark giving us that detail? And what's this going on with immediately? Well, because they want to make him king. The crowd wants to force him to be king. So Jesus takes the disciples and forces them to get into the boat because he doesn't want them there when the crowd tries to swarm Jesus. So we see that Jesus made his disciples. Don't look for this word in your notes, but what it literally means is he compelled them, he constrained them because he doesn't want them swept up in the superficial plans of the crowd, so he's gonna remove the disciples from the situation, and that's gonna serve another purpose as the story unfolds. So they follow the rabbi's directive. And he says to them, I'll meet you later. So they set out from the eastern shore where Jesus' solitary place is at, and they put the sails up, and they begin making their way out into the Sea of Galilee. But for some reason, they detour up to Bethsaida, thinking, we'll pick him up there. Maybe that's where he'll meet us at. So no doubt, the disciples leave the shore that day absolutely excited by the crowd's response. Think back to what Jesus has been telling them to be praying about. Jesus, teach us how to pray. Well, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, they've been praying for God's kingdom to come. We've been studying about God's kingdom for weeks now. They've been praying about God's kingdom to come, and it looks like it's coming. The crowd wants him to be king but Jesus needs to remove them from that environment because it's not time for him to be king. 
So go back to John's version of the story again now. John 6, 16 says this, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. So you've got the picture in your mind. The sun is setting. It's not dark yet. Evening is on the horizon. Evening is referring to this time between the first evening and the second evening. And they sail a little ways... But they go to Bethsaida, and they wait, when? Until it became dark. And John 6 says, Jesus had not yet come to them, meaning he didn't come to Bethsaida. And so they put the boat back out into the water again, and they keep sailing to Capernaum, and the disciples now find themselves continuing their voyage. Now, where Matthew and Mark and John have different angles of the story, they all agree on one thing, and I want to show you what that one thing is. If you're watching on monitors or you're watching on your television or you're looking at the screen in the auditorium, look at the series of descriptions here. Each of them record one crucial point. John 6:18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Or this one, Mark 6:48. Straining at the oars, for the wind was against him at the fourth watch of the night. Or this one from Matthew, Matthew 14, 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. And here's the one word that's consistent in all three of those. It's that Greek word, bazanizo. The water's like tortured. The water's roiled up. It's vexed according to this description. So what you're looking at is a weather description here, the weather descriptions, and it's not a gentle spring rain. John goes on to use this description. He says there's a strong wind. It's the next Greek word in your notes, the word megas. Megas! You heard me use that years ago at New Hope. We describe something so massive, exceedingly great. And I'm wondering if you're in that place right now. Have you been in that place recently? Are are you there right now where you didn't necessarily choose to be and the storm is out of control around you and you'd much rather be back on shore where it's safe and and you look back at the shore and you think, that's where I want to be. I want to go back there. That's where it's safe. It was so much better back then. And now you find yourself in the midst of trauma And I know some of you all are there right now. This is all too real. We sense this emotion, we sense this panic, and the storm that you've encountered is threatening everything that you know, and these issues, these issues are just representative of bigger issues. Maybe you got things going on in your life right now that are way bigger than a virus. You wish that a virus was all that you had to worry about. Because you know that's going to go away. It's going to be gone, but there's some bigger things going on. Well, for the disciples, it's the middle of the night. It's dark, dark. There's dark, and then there's 3 a.m. dark, and they're in 3 a.m. dark, and it can't get much harder than this, can it? But it does. See, the wind is so powerful that in this moment, it's blowing them completely off course. They're no longer moving west. They're moving further and further out to sea to the deepest, darkest part of the water. Look with me on the screen. Mark, or, yeah, Mark 6, 47. The boat was now in the middle of the sea. 
There's some things you need to understand about the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's put your hands together like this and make a cup and you would understand the Sea of Galilee is cup-like in its formation. It's surrounded by mountains and canyons and it sits 600 feet below sea level. The mountains around it, they rise up 3,000 feet. And so you've got a difference in height of 3,000 feet down to 600 feet below sea level. And there's something significant about that because in the Middle Eastern sunlight, everything's of equal temperature. But when that sun begins to wane and it's opsios and it's the end of the day and the sun's disappearing behind the mountains, what's going on? Well, the air is rapidly cooling The sun that warmed the desert is no longer warming the desert. And now as the air cools rapidly, it begins rushing down the hillsides into the canyons. And when it hits the water, it begins doing what your washing machine does when it agitates clothing. It begins swirling. It gets that because of the cooling air. And that's why the Sea of Galilee is known for these sudden violent storms because of the sharp drop of nearly 3,000 feet of cold air coming down onto the warm surface of the water. And that's where the disciples are. And they're rowing west towards Capernaum directly into the teeth of the storm, but they're being pushed further and further and further and further away from their goal. They're out into the middle of the sea now, but they're desperately trying to reach shore When I read John 6, I'm reminded that grown men do cry, even commercial fishermen. Let me take you into the story a little deeper. Go with me to verse 19. It says this in verse 19 in the first part, then when they had rowed about three or four miles. Now that right there tells you something about the physical condition of these guys who walked with Jesus that they can do that in the midst of the wind for three or four miles. Literally, it says 30 stadia in the Greek language. Uh, A stadium was 607 feet long in Rome, and and so 30 Roman stadiums stacked together. Well, you'll find out if you do the math on that, it's about three and a half miles that they've been rowing against the wind. And what happens next, New Hope? No one has ever seen before. Or since, in the midst of the storm, with the flashes of lightning, the strobe effect going on by the lights going on and the lights going off and the crack of thunder and the spray of the water, one of the 12 is looking back to where they came from. One of the 12 looks back towards shore and in terror sees this human form coming towards them. And because of a shriek, apparently, they all turn and look to see what does he see? And verse 19 in John 6 tells you what they saw. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. And John gives you a really mild term when he uses phoibeo, Mark is much more honest when he writes this, and I'll show you that in just a moment. So just picture the setting for a moment. Except for the bolts of lightning, it's pitch black. It's 3 a.m. dark. It's dark, dark. And they're physically and mentally exhausted. And they've been struggling for hours rowing since nine o'clock in the evening, and the sails are useless. They're making no headway whatsoever. They're just moving further away from their goal. And the emotional trauma and the anxiety 
is spiking because they don't have control of the situation. And in that, through the darkness, through the swirling wind, through the stinging spray, through the raging waves and the ear-piercing thunder, they see a form walking on the sea directly into the storm, not away from it. Mark 6.48 records it this way. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And the fourth watch of the night in the Roman world is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so we know it's dark, dark. And because of the darkness and because of the blinding spray, they can't determine what it is. All they know is they see a form. And if they've never believed in ghosts, they certainly do now. Mark 6, 49 says this, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. And finally, Mark gives you the definition of what they're really feeling. The next Greek word in your notes, and you're almost done with the Greek words now, anakradzo. And it's where we get the definition of the word crazy in the English world. Anakradzo is just the bigger picture of it. What are they doing with anakradzo? They're crying, they're screaming, they're shouting out loud. People hear odd people screaming like that today, they'd say, you're crazy. Remember, at least seven of these are commercial fishermen. They've made their living at the sea and they know rough weather. If you've ever watched television and you've seen a television show called The Deadliest Catch, you know what commercial fishing looks like in the northern part of the Pacific Ocean. These guys know rough weather. They've lived in it their whole life. So it's not the weather that's freaking them out. They're working hard, but the weather is not what's scaring them. What's scaring them is this. There's no natural explanation for what they see. And there's sheer terror. Now, skeptics very quickly today would say, well, Jesus was walking on a sandbar. Or Jesus was walking on ice because there was a sudden ice storm that brought ice and froze the Sea of Galilee. Or Jesus stretched out a net. Okay, well, we can dispel every one of those myths. There's no sandbar in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And there's no ice storms in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus didn't drive pylons down into the water 140 feet deep, which is what it is in the middle of the sea. There's a reason the authors of Scripture go out of their way to say the boat was a long way from shore. Look at this, Mark 6:47. The boat was in the middle of the sea. Why do the authors of Scripture want you to know that? Because your God is not constrained by human limitations. Right? God's not constrained by that. If he is... We might as well just stop right here. God's not constrained. If he can create galaxies, can God overcome the forces of nature? Can he overcome viruses? Can he stop things when he wants things to stop? Picture this. If Jesus can see the disciples from four miles away, while he's on a mountainside in a solitary place and it's black at night and it's a storm, if he can see them from that distance and walk to them on water, can he see you in your storm? Can he overcome all that would form against you? 
Let me give you a couple verses to write down. You're watching at home right now? Write this down in the back of your Bible. Write it down on a notepad. You want to see these verses and be reminded who is fighting for you. 2 Kings 6.16 says this, Do not fear, for those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. Or like I said in my letter this week, Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Did Jesus change the molecular structure of water? I don't know. Did Jesus take this moment in time to suspend gravity? I don't know. I don't know the answers to those things. If you get to heaven before I do, you can ask him how he did it. Here's what I do know. I do know that he is the creator of the universe. And as the creator of the universe, once again, he's given proof to you and I of what Colossians 1.15 says. I think you need to be reminded of that this morning. Look with me at this. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together even water molecules, even water molecules that need to suspend him while he walks on the water. Now, in response to the great terror that the disciples have, Jesus says to them what he's saying to you today, the very thing that this was recorded for. He wanted you to know this, John 6, 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid in the midst of your trauma. Jesus is speaking directly to people who are in trauma. He's speaking directly to them, and he tells them what they need to hear, and he's saying the same thing to you today. If you find yourself consumed with fear at this moment, in the midst of uncertainty, Jesus says, don't be afraid. I've got control. I've got everything under control. At this point, John leaves out a really important detail and we find Mark leaving out the exact same detail, but Matthew is the only one that includes it, and I'm not sure why, but that we have it is like bonus material. Keep going with me, Matthew 14, 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. The, the word there that's used, the Greek word is kalugo, and it actually is a military term. It means to command as like give an order to a soldier. So Jesus responds is this, verse 29, and he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? I bet some of you have read that story a hundred times, and maybe you've never stopped to ask yourself this question. What is Peter doubting in? Is Peter doubting in Jesus? No. Is Peter doubting in Peter? Yeah, absolutely. I know that because of what Jesus says to him. You have little faith, why did you distadzo? It's the last Greek word I'm going to give you this morning. 
And it means to duplicate, mentally to waver. In other words, there's duplicity of mind going on in the midst of the trauma. Duplicating what? What is he duplicitous about? Well, he's allowing other thoughts to enter his mind. And here's what we do as humans in the midst of trauma. We have contrary thoughts which compete with our thoughts about God. So God's calling him out. Peter, why are you allowing your thoughts to compete with me? Those thoughts compete with God. Follow the flow of this. Peter's been through the storm, the same storm that the other 11 have been through. He's been doing the same fighting physically that they've been doing. And he gets out of the boat knowing some things are true. He knows God is in control. Because he said, Lord, if it's you, call me out there to you. So he knows it's God and he knows God is in control. And he knows that God is not scared. And he knows that God has called him. But those truths that he knows are competing for space in his mind. The circumstances are real. He's really in a storm. There's really a virus going on in your world right now. Peter's really stepping out onto the water, and there's no boat for him to cling to anymore. And so we find in Matthew 14, 30, but seeing the wind, look at this verse close, but seeing the wind, he became frightened. What's remarkable about that statement? You can't see the wind, right? You can't see it. All you can see are the results of the wind. In other words, Peter seeing the circumstances, he took his eyes off the one who called him and is beginning to focus on the circumstances, meaning the events, meaning the people storming the Costco to buy up all the supplies, meaning the people making a run on the market to sell all their stocks. He's seeing the circumstances and he's panicking. The events surrounding him are what's captivating his mind rather than the capacity of God. See, it's not anything, New Hope, other than a change of focus that's altering his thinking. The water is still the same. The storm is still blowing and it's still dark out. Nothing has changed from the moment he steps out of the boat other than his capacity to see God in the midst of the circumstance. His capacity to focus on God being in control of all the circumstances. Who allowed the storm in the first place? Who commanded the disciples to get into the boat and go out to the sea knowing there was gonna be a storm coming? Who allowed the virus in our world? Is God in control or not? God allows things in order to shape according to his purposes and his will. And we're not talking about the power of positive thinking here. We're not talking about just thinking good thoughts. My family would attest to the fact that I'm an eternal optimist. I tend to see the glass half full all the time, not half empty. I get that power of positive thinking and that's good. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is the capacity to focus on who God is, what he is capable of. And the only way you can do that is through knowing his word and walking with him. In other words, having experience with God. 
You have your history to go on, God being faithful to you throughout the course of your life and the things that you know about God that he's written in his word. That's why I've buried deep in my heart, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, and this church knows that I've shared that many times. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. We bury God's word in our hearts so that in moments like this, we can lean into it. You do that through his word. So here's a gut check for you right now. Coming into the last couple minutes of this, and then you'll sign off online. And we won't meet again until next week because of the realities of what go on in our world right now. So I'm gonna ask you to do a gut check right now. When you're out of the boat, when you have nothing else to cling to, do you believe that God knows you by name? God knows Peter by name. Peter, come on out to me. Do you believe that that God who knows you by name is greater than your circumstances that you're in? I think this would be a great time right now just to offer up a prayer to God. Just say, God, would you, as my king, command me? Would you urge me out of the boat? Would you urge me to take a step, even though I might be frightened right now? Cause me to draw near to you as opposed to clinging to the boat. Watch what happens with Peter. Matthew 14, verse 30 says this, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. That's true desperation. I'm not gonna take anything away from Peter in that moment. I know he's desperate there. He's beginning to drown. And apparently there's enough time for him to get out. Lord, save me, I'm going down. Just as an aside, by the way, there's proof right there for you that the water was pretty deep. There's no net and there's no ice and there's no sandbar because Peter's freaking out. He knows, I'm about to drown in the middle of the, of the Sea of Galilee. But here's what I want you to see. How does your Jesus respond in trauma? Does he ignore? Does, does he look at Peter and say, go ahead and drown. You're such a loser. You screw up all the time. Or does he think, I'll just let Peter bobble a bit. Maybe we'll just let him swallow a little bit of water. Then I'll rescue him. Now, I want you to see how your Jesus responds. Look with me at the rest of the verse, verse 30. Matthew 14, 30, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. That's your God, New Hope. That's your God when you give it to him. And at times, I know right now, it doesn't feel like there's an immediate in your world. You might be thinking, I want that kind of an immediate. I would like him immediately to stretch out his hand and save us. In those times when it isn't immediate, doesn't mean he's not paying attention. What it means is that's his grace and his patience because you truly don't know what he's doing in the background. You truly don't know the plan that he's laying out. He knows what you can handle. He knows what you're capable of. He's not gonna tempt you beyond what you're able to endure. He promises that in his word. Let me reinforce this thought 
coming from the exact same Peter, a much older Peter, who's looking back on the younger Peter and writing about God being patient. Our God is not slow, Peter says. Look at this, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. This is a characteristic of your God. But he's patient. What's he writing about there? He's writing about God being patient, waiting for sinners to become believers in Jesus. He's patient. That's a characteristic of God. Sometimes God doesn't act immediately because he's waiting for his purposes to be accomplished. See, he's delaying when it's part of his purpose. The key is for us to put it in his hand. So here's how I'm going to compel you now. Like Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat, I'm going to compel all of us at New Hope this way. Stop trying to be your own lifeguard. Stop trying to save yourself. When you're drowning and you're in the midst of trauma, remember that your lifeguard walks on water. That lifeguard, we should make that into a t-shirt, church. My lifeguard walks on water. Peter's soaking wet now. This is the end of the story. Peter's soaking wet. He's still gurgling water, and he climbs back into the boat, and then Jesus steps on board. And when Jesus steps on board, the storm immediately stops, Mark 6, 51. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. And if you go on and read the story later today, you're going to see that miraculously, in that moment, the boat immediately traverses all the way across the sea. It arrives on the western shore. We don't even know how. The writers just say it did. They're utterly astonished, wouldn't you be, to this degree, they fall before him in worship, and I found this to be the only time this occurs in all 66 books of the Bible, the one and only moment in time when all 12, including Judas, fall down and worship him. Watch this, Matthew 14, 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. In the Greek language, it's a really beautiful way that it's stated here. Don't look for it in your notes. It's not going to say it there, but just hear this. Son of God, in truth, you are. That's the way they said it when they all fell before him. Let me give you two observations before you turn off your TV or close your laptop or if you're in the auditorium, pick up your Bibles and leave. Here's two observations for you I want you to see, and it's, this is in your notes, but hear this as application for your life this week. Jesus calls us to do more than we think we are able to do. He calls us to more than we think we're capable of because he is the one who enables us. Peter didn't get out of the boat on Peter's power. He got out of the boat on Jesus' power because Jesus called him out. What you cannot do on your own is accomplished by the power of God's Spirit working through you. And here's the second one, and this applies to how this virus is hitting your world right now. See the magnitude of the moment. See the magnitude of the mission that you're on right now. See the magnitude of that as a moment for faith and obedience. Not a period of time when you would shrink away and use it as an excuse for not obeying, but rather, God, how do you want to use me in the midst of this? What do you want to do through me? Can I help a mom who needs help watching her kids? 
Can I take a meal to someone who needs help? Can I comfort someone? Can I read scripture to someone? Can, can I invite them even to watch the New Hope broadcast next week? How do you want to use me to do this? That's how I would compel you this morning. Let's close our time together in prayer and ask God to seal this in our heart. Would you join me whether you're online or whether you're in the auditorium? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single one of the hundreds of souls who are dialed in to what you want to communicate through your word. And I pray that you would bless it. Use it to strengthen us, use it to convict us, use it to cause us to reach out to people who are genuinely scared. And remind us once again that you have all things in control. So Father, cause us to lean into your word even when we in our moments feel timid. Strengthen us through the power of what you have written, what you've declared to be true about who you are. It's in Jesus' matchless name we pray and all God's people say, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.